Greetings, dear listeners. It's just Shadi and I this week talking about Elon Musk buying Twitter and the general freakout about free speech that's going on right now. We start there and find that we agree on a lot. The conversation then turns to the importance of social media more broadly. We argue about revolutions, the Arab Spring, and the ambivalent role the internet has played in all those events. A lot of that is in the special bonus episode. If you're not a paying subscriber, head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and get access to the whole show in one file. A reminder to those of you who have already become members, update your players to point to the subscriber-only feed to get the bonus content seamlessly attached to the first free part. On to the show. Look, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure I have like a fully formed opinion on the Elon stuff and him buying Twitter, but it's interesting. It feels like a lot of the ideas that we started wisdom of crowds around, um, a lot of the sort of jokes about the wisdom of crowds (laughs) as a title (laughs) are wrapped up in a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, and I figured we should maybe talk about it. And I'm not sure where this conversation will go, but I, I think we could probably fill an hour and change of, of, of musings on this because I have, I have disorganized thoughts on this and I, I, I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it all over the place. I, there's, it's a really interesting moment in sort of social media world in America and oligarchic capture and <laughs> free speech and, and democracy and what does, you know, what is the actual voice of the people and... How do we give it expression? Should we give it we, expression? Who we are, are we? the voice of the people? <laughs> we are the voice of the people. I don't know, Shadi. I, I let's just kick it off by just kicking. I'm, what you're following this? I'm, you know, I, we're both working on other things right now, but it's been sort of impossible to not pay attention to it. I, I, do you have any any thoughts? I haven't seen you really tweeting about it much. Um, <laughs> I, I tweeted See, something kind of flippant, knowing that it would annoy you know, sort of, and it was meant to annoy specifically, um, you know, social activists and stuff like that. So I, I, I wrote something disparaging and then got lightly jumped on. And Can you remind us what you said? You replied to it at some point. Ponder it, ponder it. But I disagreed with you. That I do remember. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, here, here's the tweet. I found it. I, I do hope Elon manages to destroy anonymity on Twitter. Time to sacrifice the ability of activists and repressive regimes to communicate in exchange for stability in our own. And then the subsequent tweet was time to restore a sense of shame and the attendant weights of responsibility to online speech. <laughs> kind of proud of that. So, so yes, I mean, well put, certainly. But I definitely disagree with the first tweet just because um, fighting against authoritarian regimes in closed societies is, in my mind a more vital consideration than the quote unquote stability of American public debate or discourse or our politics more broadly. I mean, we'll survive. America will muddle through for all of its faults. I don't know if dissent, if dissidents and protesters will survive in authoritarian regimes if they don't have these social media platforms and they're not protected in some sense, including by being anonymous. That's just, that's a, maybe a side point because it, it relates to a specific set of people. I mean, at the same time, you know, so, like a very small subset of people. And I didn't, I, I, 
I really I, I tried to clarify a little bit my impish trolling there because on the one hand I I am skeptical legitimately skeptical of this idea that you know uh, the only thing keeping social change going in repressive regimes is the freedom of social media like and anonymity on social media I think that's grossly overstated on the one hand but I've the other part of the dig because I don't I don't really care about the stability of, of our own system in a lot of ways. So, you know, I mean, it was sort of the dig against the whole post-Trump obsession with social media, which is like, we have to regulate this because if we don't, we're going to have more Trumps. And that's obviously horseshit too, right? Um, I think, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I and, and I so that was, the, that was the, the sort of torque in the tweet, you know, like I hardly, I'm hardly, you know, uh, all that committed to to, you know, uh, write talk on the internet. And I mean, I was sort of, even even in, in, in trolling on Twitter, I don't know, it was perhaps too clever by half and I didn't really think about it when I, when I, when I tweeted it. But I, that was, I, I did want to just sort of, it was, it was, it was my best attempt at a shit post uh, that, <laughs> that, that I could like, you know, just like knock out. Um, and what we need more of in life and on Twitter is shit posting clearly. And Elon will save us there. <laughs> <laughs> so here, here's here's what I'd say to start off. Mm. I didn't really have a lot of interest in getting involved in this debate. And that's why I haven't really been tweeting much about it. And quite honestly, I haven't been tweeting much in general. Because I'm still sort of in the, in the Ukraine or post-Ukraine mode of thinking that a lot of our debates here in the U.S. have, bec have become frivolous and silly and vaguely ridiculous. And I think there's something, there's something almost offensive about getting in these dumb Twitter debates when people are dying every day in Ukraine in, in quite large numbers. That said, we have to move, I mean, we still have to be able to debate our own American politics and the, the war in Ukraine will likely be going on for months to come. So clearly, we have to have opinions about this, especially because it does relate to some pretty critical questions about how we organize society. So if you get beyond all the all the freaking out on Twitter, where, oh, Elon Musk is going to destroy the world or whatever, you get past that and you, you do get to foundational differences about what about the democratic idea. What is democracy and to what extent should elites regulate democracy. And I think the more I've been paying attention to the debate over, you know, Musk and Twitter, I think that there's something pretty frightening going on. And it's not from Elon Musk. Yeah. It's from his opponents. Yeah. So I, I am feeling that more and more. So I just read Obama's big speech about tech regulation and misinformation which I think happened um, last week or something like that. And we'll include a link to that address in the show notes. It was at Stanford University. So I normally would not have read a speech like this. I mean, it's relatively banal and it doesn't say anything new or original, but it is still frightening in the sense that Obama does basically come out and say that there has to be more regulation and more limits on free speech, including on social media platforms. And even though they are private companies, he believes that 
they have enough of a relevance to to public life that the government the government can and perhaps even should step in fine okay that's step one um the regulatory structure but then the question is first of all we don't really know what that looks like in practice who decides what that regulatory structure is and of course obama's vision is that it would be it would be right thinking, and I don't mean on the right side of the spectrum, I just mean people who have the quote unquote right ideas, they would be the ones determining the boundaries of discourse. So if you say something that is climate change denial, that could fall outside of the boundaries of acceptable speech. And already some of that has been happening. And I I just read a piece the other day about how Twitter had banned climate change propaganda ads. Um, so that, that relates to ads more specifically, but still, who decides what climate change propaganda is? I think climate change is real. I think people who deny it are completely wrong. But where do you draw the line? And, you know, it, where do you draw the line on vaccines um, and being skeptical about aspects of the vac- vaccine discourse? All of these things can fall under the rubric of quote unquote misinformation and, there, and therefore they can be restricted under a regulatory framework if we follow Obama's logic. So that to me, that to me is what we really have to pay attention to. And I'll just give a specific example of what he says in his speech. Um, okay. Interesting. Interesting. I'm just rereading certain parts. Interesting, Barry. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Okay. Look, so, so he says, he says that because companies recognize the often dangerous relationship between social media nationalism and domestic hate groups they do need to engage with vulnerable populations about how to put better safeguards in place to protect minority populations, ethnic populations, religious minorities, wherever they operate. Sounds very nice on at face value, but if the priority becomes protecting religious or ethnic minorities, and I happen to be one of them, <laughs> then... Um, does that mean that if people say offensive things about Muslims, like that could be restricted because that's in the name of protecting minority populations? I mean, where does this end? And again, who decides what the red lines are? Another another example, he talks about how he would, he's giving some standards about how he would evaluate regulatory proposals as it relates to social media. This is what he says. The way I'm going to evaluate any proposal touching on social media is whether it strengthens or weakens the prospects for a healthy, inclusive democracy and whether it encourages robust debate and respect for our differences, whether it, in, whether it reinforces rule of law and self-governance, and whether it helps us make collective decisions based on the best available information. Oh, and there's, and, and. <laughs> sorry, there's a lot of ands. This is such a long sentence. And whether it recognizes the rights and freedoms and dignity of all our citizens. Okay, again, sounds reasonable, but because it's, 
because it's liberal elites and cultural elites in this country who decide what all of those words mean. So for example, the freedoms and dignity of all of our citizens. What's dignity? Yeah, exactly. What what does that mean? So anything that is an affront to the dignity of a, of, of a of a citizen or a group, and then let's not obviously you know one of the big lightning rods in this debate is how people talk about um, trans rights online. So there's a or so it has a lot of applications, and we as Americans do not agree on what the standard of dignity is or should be. Um, and it's also like an instrumentalist argument. He's saying that the proposal is good if it helps us have a healthy, inclusive democracy. He yeah. decides what a healthy, inclusive democracy right. is. Right. I was about to say, um, yeah, what's healthy and what's inclusive also. Yeah. Those are the three says, words as you were reading that I highlighted. as dignity, <laughs> healthy, and inclusive. What are we talking about here? Exactly. Yeah, and he says, we make collective decisions based on the best available information. Who decides what the best available information? I mean, I could just go on, but this is where we're going. So do you, did you... Um, Again, not we're not that far apart in years. Uh, in, I think it had to have been elementary school, I'm guessing. I just remember, uh, you know, being taught about uh, free speech in America. And I remember the kind of examples that would, uh, you know, be put forth. Elementary school, you know, children. Um, and it would, and I remember even being like, wow, that's, that's serious stuff. When they'd say stuff like... Uh, we protect, you know, the rights of even the Ku Klux Klan who are, you know, to basically march and that this is one of the great strengths of America that, you know, if you believe crazy shit like that, even people like that are, you know, allowed to have a public hearing, which is basically a march through a town or something like that. Right. Yeah. And um, and, you know, they'd say, like, we have the ACLU and, and organizations such as that that are, in fact, you know, stand uh, ready to defend that. And, you know, our entire legal system, you know, we have lawyers who will represent groups like these because, you know, the, the sacrosanct value here is speech. And there was a, there was a, there was a faith behind it, um, a faith that uh, the best way to deal with this sort of stuff is to engage with it. Um, not necessarily, you know, uh, spend a lot of time... <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, wasting one's time uh, getting into the finer points of uh, race of, you know, white supremacy theory or whatever the hell these people, uh, fault, you know, ultimately subscribe to, unless you want to really get into that. But, you know, as a, as a public, we needn't necessarily get into these sorts of things, but we shouldn't repress it. I think that was the, that was the thing I remember learning in elementary school is that, Repression of these things uh, doesn't, you know, that that maybe put it this way, if I remember correctly, uh, was something like, you know, change comes by giving, by shining the light on any and uh, all ideas. And I guess it's kind of a an optimistic, rationalist sort of idea that bad ideas would get defeated by good ideas in the sort of open um, fight between them, right? I remember that was sort of the, the, the gist of letting Klansmen march through towns if they wanted to. And it's it's striking how we've moved beyond that in this online era, and really right after Trump, right? And it's when um, 
the sort of awesome power of social media to to warp people uh, became just sort of an accepted part of how we think about things. That obviously, uh, you know, stuff you read on the internet uh, is going to uh, basically tempt you to uh, vote incorrectly or, you know, vote for someone like Trump, who you just would not have ever deigned to vote for otherwise, right? Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, do, do, you, do you remember learning something like that when you were coming up? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, that was the whole idea behind the ACLU and other yeah. civil rights organizations. They were, in a sense, free speech absolutists, which makes this all ironic. And here I have a Reuters headline from the other day. It says, human rights groups, including the ACLU, raised concerns about hate speech on Twitter and the power that Elon Musk would have after his acquisition. And they referred to Elon Musk as a self-described free speech absolutist. So that is what is concerning them there. So here is a free speech absolutist taking over a social media company. And that to them is what's frightening. So it's almost a reversal of the ACLU's traditional position. And um, I mean, after all, what could be worse than a free speech absolutist. I mean, that's that's the that's where the discourse is right now. But I think that there's there's a there's an element of scapegoating here because instead of in instead of political and cultural elites who are primarily liberals in northeastern cities and on the west coast, instead of looking inward and reassessing assumptions about the way they looked at the world and what they got wrong, they can say that false information is the primary problem. And if only people could be exposed to the truth that we have, and only we have, then they would vote correctly. Then they wouldn't vote for someone like Donald Trump. It's a way of basically blaming people, blaming Americans for the opinions that they have and to suggest that they have no legitimate right to believe something that is contrary to a certain consensus. So it is really a way to exert, um, there's almost an authoritarian instinct. Obviously this is not authoritarianism. We are a democracy and we shouldn't make, I think analogies that don't hold up. This We're not gonna become some kind of, um, you know, tech dictatorship, God willing. But, you know, there is an authoritarian instinct which is driving a growing number of people on the left side of the spectrum. And they don't even realize that that's what they're doing and saying because they believe they are right. And because they are right, they have found the truth. And therefore it's their job to spread the truth and to make sure that as many Americans as possible are exposed to it. To be fair, it's not it's not even the left, right? Uh, I mean, we're singling out Obama, but there's also the 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 entire sort of establishment Republican side of of of, of the things, and you know, uh, people that really felt that that Trump um, was unnatural, that uh, Trump took over their party. You know, I mean, there's that that element seems like what's happening here. So I think it's it's fair to say that this is really the center that's that's fighting this fight. It's a center that has lost, you know, through, uh, uh, you know, the test of democracy, 
at least in 2016, lost its legitimacy. Um, and it fought back by asserting that its legitimacy is grounded in the truth, and the only way it could lose legitimacy is if the truth was occluded from the people. I think that's sort of the impulse behind this, right? Again, this is what I was saying at the beginning. I, I, I feel like this is relevant to the wisdom of crowds, because at least from my perspective, the impish title of a, this podcast and this whole venture that we're, <laughs> we're, we're undergoing here is that, yeah, here's the wisdom of the crowds. You got your Donald Trump. Take that. There's, there's wisdom for you. You know, the crowds have decided. And, but no, it was Russian disinformation. It was, uh, you know, and if it's not Russian, then it's social media companies themselves by, uh, you know, uh, 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 whatchamacallit, um, highlighting and, uh, uh, you know, pushing forward uh, the kinds of stuff that is more popular rather than more truthful, that this leads to a kind of distortion within the body politic. Um, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I haven't, I haven't done much thinking on it since I wrote an article, I think it was in 2017 at the American interest talking about anonymity, which also I was sort of, um, pivoting off in the, in that tweet, but we can, we can sort of leave anonymity aside because it is a sort of separate set of issues. Um, but it, it was it was in in reading this stuff this week this whole fight over over Elon Musk um, and then our friend um, my former colleague Jason Willick who's been on the podcast before uh, he's got a piece coming out this week in the Washington Post and he was you know sharing a a draft with me sort of getting feedback and uh, you and I talked about it as well Shadi he 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 um, he he linked to. Uh, an article I was, I think, let me see if I can find it. I think it was in Harper's last year. I, I don't know if you had a chance to to look at that one. Um, it was uh, Joseph Bernstein in Harper's. Right, right. Uh, um, the article is called, and we'll also link it down, so called Bad News, Selling the Story of Disinformation. And I, he nails something in there that that to me has seemed really right in all of this, which is, you know, I think one shouldn't, be completely cavalier about um, about you know that there have been impacts from social media on our politics, and I think he's he's deft enough. And Jason, in his piece that should come out later this week, is also I think deft in in addressing some of this. Um, but but you know it's the the point that that Bernstein makes in his piece is that our politics emerges out of something a lot bigger than our media ecosystem. Um, he, he cites something called pre-propaganda, you know, which is this idea that I think a lot of these disinfo people have come up with that, you know, things end up going more viral, uh, on social media if it has like the, the, the push of certain prominent either celebrities or politicians or whatever. Um, and, and he makes a really good case that it's, you know, something like Trump, um, is, is the product of a matrix of sort of American society, which has always seemed right to me, you know, like Trump is us. I've, I, I like saying that. I know you sometimes push back, like he's not, it's not, he's not, you know, he's not representative of all of America. We, we dislike Trump. Yeah, sure. Obviously. But Trump is also authentically American in so many ways, you know, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's a certain kind of, uh, you know, Jacksonian impulse on foreign policy, a sense of, grievance, uh, you know, sort of America alone, we're, we're the best and we're getting taken advantage of. Um, it's an anti-elitism, which is very American, I think, as well, a kind of paranoid style to American politics, you know. Um, 
And 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 yeah, that that plays into the kind of media system that we have that existed well before social media. You know, I mean, you had this kind of stuff. There was talk radio and the panics behind that before. Um, and so it's it's just another one of these these things where you know the the thing that I find most um, troubling and repugnant about all this like misinfo disinfo stuff is that it's yeah it's just not reflective. The people who propound it just don't really think very hard about any of this. Um, and, you know, as you were saying, uh, never mind what, what an inclusive democracy is, but what is a healthy democracy? Uh, a healthy democracy is one where wrong think doesn't happen, apparently, um, you know, by, by Obama's lights to a certain extent. Um, so I don't know yeah. where I'm going with that, but it's, 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 it is that, though, right? It's like that, 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 that there's a cart and horse thing that I think is wrong about this. This idea that that you know, uh, if only people, and it, it gets to the whole question of education, right? Which also th that is a, a more left wing sort of thing. That if you know, um, if if voters were only educated, uh, um, they could be freed from a certain kind of false consciousness. That that is the way for for uh, for enlightenment and emancipation is education, and it's it's tied to that, that, that education and engagement with the facts uh, leads to a quote-unquote healthy democracy. And if you don't have that, you have uh, an unsanitary public space, which leads to an unhealthy democracy, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, so the issue also with the word disinformation is that it obscures what you should do if you confront a bad idea or a false idea, which is understand why the person believes it and to have some kind of genuine intellectual curiosity about what formed their worldview. If we just dismiss something immediately as false or misinformation, then we lose that opportunity to have a deeper engagement. And so we're basically obscuring the origins of our crisis, the so-called root causes. And it allows us to basically avoid any kind of deeper thinking or, or assessment. Um, that I think is really what's at the core of it. And uh, so this is also pretty crazy, which I just found out about today. And I'm surprised this wasn't a bigger deal when it came out, but in February, uh, our department of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security released a document titled um, "National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin." Hmm. The summary, which we can include as a link, it's called "Summary of Terrorism Threat to the U.S. Homeland." So they're using the it's they're talking ostensibly about terrorism here, and then the first paragraph is this. The U.S. remains in a heightened threat environment fueled by several factors, including an online environment filled with false or misleading narratives and conspiracy theories and other forms of mis, dis, and malinformation. So that's referring to misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, and they came up with an acronym for that, MDM. Hmm. So in the first paragraph of a summary of a quote-unquote terrorism threat, our government is highlighting misleading narratives as part of a terrorist threat. Yeah. I can't even believe this. Yeah, yeah. 
So, and, and okay, that's one point on the point of education. And I'm sure Demir, you'll have, you'll have thoughts about this. And I think Jason touches on it in his upcoming piece, which is smart people or people who have the most knowledge and access to facts tend to be the most ideologically intense, the most ideologically committed, and the ones who are most resistant to reassessing their own opinions. So this idea that you basically want people with master's and PhD degrees to like run the world might be good in some ways in certain areas, but in other ways, it would basically lead to an entire group of people who don't like changing their opinion and who become very, and who sometimes become very aggressive when faced with countervailing information. And there, there's there's actually a growing academic literature about this, a number of natural experiments and surveys that get at this, this fundamental this fundamental fact. It's also a theme in the excellent book, Democracy for Realists, yeah. which I think dismantles with this idea that if only you give people good education, they make good decisions. Um, that's just not the way the world works. And I've often said here, here on the pod, the people who believe in the craziest, or I should say the craziest and the most dangerous things in other parts of the world that I've lived in tend to be the best educated and including people who are educated in the West. Again, it might seem counterintuitive, but, um, and there's reasons for that. I mean, I think the most basic reason is that if you're well-educated, you have a commitment to the idea that you are right and others are wrong. And there's a kind of intellectual superiority that results. That's certainly part of it. Um, and we all fall victim to this, especially in areas that you know we we focus on or that we think we're quote unquote experts in. It does take a little bit more to listen to what other people have to say. So this is a universal problem. Um, but because the U.S. has a lot of um, highly self-regarding gatekeepers, they yeah. So this is yeah. These are not the people we necessarily want. To, to run our social media companies. And maybe it's better to have a weirdo or a crazy or a vaguely crazy person like Elon Musk who has a different approach. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know uh, whether Elon's going to be a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, ha I happily bracket that and, and, you know, get the popcorn bucket uh, to watch rather than, than claim one way or the other how this is going to work out. Because honestly, I, I have no idea how it's going to work out. But, you know, I, I, I was struck by that point, too. And I'd forgotten about uh, Democracy for Realists that, 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 that makes that case in, in one way. But, you know, the, the, the implication uh, and what Jason's getting at there is that, that, that low information voters are what, what allows a democracy to function, which I love. I love that as an idea, right? That, that, that in fact, getting information is, is you know, if, if perhaps we had perfectly informed voters, 100% perfectly informed voters... Uh, or never mind, not perfectly informed. That's that's sort of a, a straw man. Uh, highly engaged, uh, and you know, voters that really paid attention a lot more. That democracy would cease to function. Um, and you know, I, that gets at again, sort of that like wisdom of crowds thing. Like, what is this wisdom? And I, I don't know. You 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 get these sorts of theories that you know, low information voters uh, only the most important stuff like filters to through to them, and and you know that kind of like. Uh, horse sense 
of the average uh, voter, the average uh, person um, gets us to the best kinds of outcomes. There's like the, the even more cynical one, which is that, you know, uh, the low information voter uh, just needs to know if he's better off or worse off and votes based on that. Um, and there, therefore, you get a cycling of leadership based on that. And you don't need more than that to do it. I don't know. Where do you come down on that as a democracy theorist and, and on this whole sort of question of of uh, what is, you know, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, the importance of individual dignity and, and these sorts of things and why democracy is good and right. Um, but I mean, how, how, how instru- when, when you are forced to get instrumentalist about it, uh, do, you, do you think about these sorts of issues at all? About, because there is, I think, among the Obama centrists, this idea that democracy is uh, good because it is, it leads to progress. If that makes well, sense. Gonna, yeah. And of course, I'm completely against that idea. I think yeah. it's, it's abs- patently absurd. And I think there's almost something anti-democratic about that premise, because if democracy doesn't end up leading to progress, right. then you can discard with democracy if yeah. progress is the ultimate goal. Yeah. It basically transforms democracy into a means and a means that you use for things that are not intrinsically related to democracy. Why should democracy necessarily lead to progress. And again, whose definition of progress? The definition of progress seems to change every day and every year. I mean, 10 years ago, Obama opposed gay marriage. That would be seen today as bigoted and and extreme. Today, he thinks that's something that everyone should support. And that might be a good evolution for him to have, but it does underscore that these are always changing standards, even within the same human being and I shouldn't say 10 years, it was, sorry, a 12 year, uh, over 12 years, he made that shift or 13. So um, so I think that's why I feel some of these issues rather strongly because they go against what is increasingly my understanding of the democratic idea. And it's on a really fundamental level. And it makes me wonder if a lot of these people believe in democracy irrespective of its outcomes. And to me, that's always been something to prioritize in part because of my experiences in the Middle East when, you know, where democratic outcomes usually aren't that good in quotation marks and are often bad. Um, Bad election results are a reality. They're going to happen pretty regularly. They might happen more in the future. We'll have to wait and see. But they've already happened quite a bit in the last six or seven years. And I think instead of in, instead of trying to prevent those things from happening by educating people and exposing them to the truth somehow and changing them, that we have to, we have to ask, why are there so many people who are looking for alternative sources of in, information? Why are there so many people in most of the major democracies in the world who aren't happy with the people who have been governing for the last several decades. I mean, that that is the that is the fundamental question. So that's where I come out on it. And I, I guess that helps me understand why I'm like the more I'm talking about this now, the more I'm bothered by it. Yeah. And um yeah, and I'm happy that I'm bothered by it because I probably should be. <laughs> well, so so I, I feel like, you know, uh going like 
35 minutes or so at this point, and I, we, we're in very broad agreement on a lot of this stuff. So I don't know, maybe maybe then let's let's talk a little bit more about um, this question of like the public sphere. Um, and I guess let's just unpack my tweet a little bit more about anonymity and about activism and, and social change, because, you know, I, I, I know where you're coming from in your criticism of what I said, but... I guess I guess the thing about the Elon thing, which is also bizarre to me, and I think Freddie DeBoer, did you read his essay that just came out yesterday no, I didn't. or the day before? Um, he he, it's not specifically. He, it's you know it's it's classic Freddie. It's a it's somewhat aggrieved and 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 uh, um, but smart as usual and and uh, mercifully a lot shorter than a lot of his stuff. I think it's it's the right length. I feel like he he overwrites sometimes. Um, but uh, you know, he he makes the case that 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 all the kerfuffle about Elon Musk and Twitter has to do with the fact that um, the people most exercised over this are the kind of people that don't like to hear uh, dissenting opinions, and those are the kinds of people that uh, populate Twitter. So they're just sort of cleaning out Twitter of things that they find offensive, and they're just creating a bubble around it. But you know, it what what struck me about it, I think Elon was tweeting this morning about. Um, platforms more downloaded on on Apple than Twitter. And I was pointing out that Trump's new social platform is higher up in the rankings than Twitter, as is TikTok. What? Yeah. Really? I mean, I think it's just getting a boost right now, whatever. It's just like a daily What is snapshot. the platform even called? Truth Social or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Truth Social. It's like trending higher than Twitter. Which that is, is crazy. But but the the thing that struck me there, you know, I, and I was reading Ross Douthat's most recent column too. And he mentioned, instead of talking about Twitter, he talked about Facebook, which is another platform that, that you know, gets a lot of attention. Um, what's striking to me about something like Twitter versus Facebook is that I abandoned Facebook about two and a half years ago and I spend less than like a fraction of a second every month even thinking that that company exists anymore. It's completely out of my life. I, I still have an account, I think. I, I haven't checked it in months I don't even, I've, you know, turned off all notifications on it. It exists there. So I guess I can be found if necessary. If someone wants to find it, but even if they found me, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I might be getting piling up messages in there because I, I never <laughs> check. Um, uh, and and yet, yet Facebook is still big. I mean, they're, they're losing money this year and for all sorts of reasons, but they're still, it's, it's still a big thing and it has no effect on my life. And <sighs> Twitter is important among our set. And our set involves, you know, policy people, think tankers, intellectuals, and journalists and politi politicians, right? Um, and so then, of course, there's like the sort of celebrity culture around it and sports and other stuff. Um, but I, 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 I wonder to myself the extent to which we're hyperventilating over, and this goes back to that that question of, you know, if the if the the if the political outcomes are, you know, basically the result of the society we have. I, I tend to think that all of the social media stuff is just something that that sits on top of all of this stuff and is is not actually all that important. You know what I mean? In the sense that that if Twitter were to become a free for all. Um, I'm not sure Musk can pull this off, but let's say it was, he was able to pull something like that off. Would it, would it matter that much? Probably um, not. 
and and but then that gets to the other question, which was my tweet about anonymity and and social activists. You know, um, the fact is that the internet is designed and structured in such a way that you know you'd have to build something really pervasive to remove anonymity. It is by its very nature an anonymous system. So if something like Twitter was to de-anonymize, bah, who cares? I, this is a thing that's like, I feel like it's a, a weird little bubble that even social activists exist in. And even your point, you're saying, you know, well, how would they how would they survive in an authoritarian system if they didn't have anonymity on Twitter, you implied? I don't know if you meant specifically on Twitter. But again, the question to you is, is the following, right? Is, is I know the Arab Spring was organized on social media, and that was a... Uh, you know, a, a transformational and important moment for you, um, intellectually, emotionally. You know, I, I think it shaped you in a lot of ways. But you know, I, it's it's it's. Do you have some sort of special attachment to the freedom of the internet as a result? I don't. I think the internet is just this thing that's kind of annoying, kind of useful in certain things, kind of accentuates some things. It changes things certainly, but I don't think it's that fundamental. Am I? Am I? Am I that's crazy on this? That's it for part one, dear listeners. In the subscriber-only section, Shadi and I continue the conversation and go even deeper on the implications of our priors. Head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and join us. See you there.